0: for us, we are going to be in Acts chapter 16. Uh, Acts 16, again, we, we come right on the heels of uh, what occurred in uh, the chapter prior, where there's a question of what is, uh, you know, how, how does somebody rightly respond to the gospel? Um, there's some noise, good job. Uh, and uh, how does somebody rightly respond to the gospel? What's required of somebody who trusts in Christ, uh, especially from a Gentile or a non-Gentile? Jewish perspective, and that question comes to the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. In a sense, uh, Paul and Barnabas bringing that question, not just answering it for themselves, but asking for the collective wisdom of God's people. And uh, and then you see the, the divide between Paul and Barnabas at the end of 15, and they go different places, and now we're tracking Paul with his new partner in, in ministry, Silas, as they uh, track on in Acts chapter 16. So, Uh, we're going to look at the first 10 verses and then kind of get through the rest of the chapter together as we go on. But if you would, let's stand just as an expression of our submission to the word of God. God is speaking, and we long to hear and submit to him. So Acts chapter 16, verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a, a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer But his father was a Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way uh, through the cities, they delivered to them, or delivered to them For observation, the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, uh, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. And so passing by Mysia, uh, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately uh, we, uh Notice the change in pronoun because they pick up Luke along the way. Uh, Immediately, we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So let's pray and ask God to be in our midst. And so, Father, we come uh, before you. Would you speak to us by the power of the Holy Spirit that your word is not just an ancient uh, script written on a scroll. Father, it is a living, active word from the living God, so Father, we pray, uh, and I pray that, that prayer of Paul, that that he thanked uh, you, that when the people in uh, Thessalonica heard the word, they heard the word of God, not of man. And so, Father, I pray that as I speak, your word would go out, and that not the words of any preacher, but Father, that that uh, we would hear. Uh, your word to us when we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Have you ever noticed sometimes in life that there's unexpected uh, direction or unexpected wisdom or some sort of unexpected instruction? You know, it's kind of like when you're learning how to drive and your dad, you know, you're, for the first time you're driving through a big city, and your dad's like, I don't care what the speed limit is, keep up with traffic or you're going to kill us all. And it's like, really? Okay. Uh, but, you know, maybe dad needs to, uh, you know, figure that out. But what about a football coach? What about a football coach that would tell his player, instead of scoring a touchdown, I want you to fall down on the one-yard line because we need to run more clocks so we can win this game. An unexpected plan to not score but to fall down. Or the the coach that looks at his team and says, hey, uh, defense, let the team score a touchdown because we need to get the ball back so that we can have the opportunity to score and potentially win this game. A lot of times there's unexpected wisdom, an unexpected instruction that comes. You think about that, coach, in a sense, do the exact opposite of what you think you should do. You know, don't score a touchdown or let the other team score. It doesn't make any sense until you start to look at it in the larger scheme. And so here in Acts 16, we come to the unexpected uh, leading of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Not that it's unexpected that the Holy Spirit would lead, but the unexpected way and unexpected instruction that the Spirit would give. And so in the first few verses, we're going to see Um, uh, uh, the verses that we read, three really unexpected ways that the Spirit leads. Uh, And the first shows up when Paul and Silas meet this young disciple, Timothy. And this is the same Timothy that Paul writes to later in the New Testament as he becomes a pastor of churches there. And so this Timothy, his mom is Jewish, his dad is Greek. Uh, And uh, and so in verse 3, In verse 3, because he wants to go on mission with them, and Paul thinks that's a great idea. Uh, Verse 3, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now interesting, Paul circumcised it, and didn't we just read in chapter 15, literally the chapter before? That circumcision was not necessary when somebody came to know Christ. We just read that. That was the decision. If you look at verse 4, as they went on uh, their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observation the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So, On their way, they're taking the very decision that was just uh, reached by the elders and the apostles, which says you don't have to be circumcised to be saved, and yet Paul takes Timothy and circumcises him. Why? It's not a matter of salvation— it's not a matter of Timothy needed that to be right before God. It was a matter that circumci- circumcision was, uh, or somebody that wasn't circumcised was a hindrance to the Jewish audience that they were going to. And so Paul says, you know, so as to not put any hindrance between Timothy and the gospel, the gospel as it reaches these people they're going to, he takes Timothy uh, and, uh, and he is circumcised. In essence, he responded, th- this is interesting, he responded, this is Paul, to the, he responded to the people's misunderstanding of salvation. He responded by doing exactly what they incorrectly required so that it would not become an issue in the proclamation of the gospel let that one roll around for a little bit. Paul does what is an incorrect understanding so that it is not a hindrance. Now, that's not unlawful, you know, so it's not like go break the law just because, you know, that you were going to reach law breakers. That's not what God's saying, but But it was not required yet. Timothy and Paul, uh, they they chose to circumcise him so that it wouldn't be a hindrance. An unexpected move of the Holy Spirit, given chapter 15. But then they press on further. So then they move on. Uh, They go on through through these different regions. Verse 6, they went through the region of uh, Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. He was forbidden to speak the word of God. Isn't that like the whole point of being an apostle? You know, like he's on these missionary journeys and he's going around and the Holy Spirit forbids them from speaking the word. I would call that unexpected. Verse seven is really interesting. And when, he, and when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go on to Bithynia So hey, let's go on to this other place. But the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So he stops them and forbids them from speaking in one area. He blocks their way going to another area, quite unexpected in what God is doing uh, there and how he's leading. Uh, And so then they go down and then there's a a visit uh, to Paul in the night, a vision that he receives, verse nine. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night a man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, "Come over to Macedonia and help us." And with that, they set out to Macedonia. And uh, and so we see the unexpected move to circumcise Timothy. We see the unexpected leading to actually block and have them not go uh, certain places. Uh, but then also, where do they end up when they go to Macedonia? We haven't read that yet. But pick up to verse eleven. In verse 11, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to uh, Samothrace. <laughs> They're killing me here. All right, and, uh, <laughs> and the following day in uh, Neapolis, and from there to Philippi which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we remained in this city some days. So we're going to stop there. We'll keep reading in a second. So they're, they're traveling through. They're going to Macedonia. They end up in one of the main cities in Macedonia, which is Philippi. Later, we get the letter of the Philippians, okay? Uh, and so all of these journeys and acts then have letters written back to these churches. So don't read those separate, you got to read the history in order to understand the letter and see what's going on. So uh, then we keep going, verse thirteen. And on the Sabbath day, uh, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed that there was a uh, that there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One. So another unexpected leading is where, do, where does Paul go when they hit Philippi, where does he go to proclaim the gospel? Typically, as if you've been remembering, when Paul goes into a city, where does he go first? The synagogue, the Jewish synagogue in these Roman cities. Uh, but that's not what he does here. Uh, in Philippi, most likely there's not a synagogue. There's not much of a Jewish, uh, a, a Jewish um, population there. Uh, and, and so uh, some commentators would say there may actually be less than 10 Jewish men in this city or else uh, 10 men could have uh, constituted a synagogue. What's interesting is no matter how many women in that time, they could not constitute a synagogue. So where does Paul go? Is to the river outside of the city Together with the ladies of Philippi who were worshiping, to us, that's beautiful. In this ancient time, that was kind of like, kind of like unexpected. Why, why is he going out there? Because God's going to break down barriers in all sorts of ways. We've already seen it racially. we've already seen it, Jew and Gentile. And here we are. we see uh, the move of God among the women of this city in Philippi. So it goes out the out of the city, and who do we meet? We meet that uh, the person Lydia. So Lydia um, actually means get, get this one Lydian woman, okay? Uh, because Lydia is actually a region, and uh, and so this lady's name came from the region in Asia. So track with me here. What where did the spirit uh, bar Paul from Paul and Silas from speaking the word? Go back to Let's see, where is that? I didn't write it down. Verse 6, hopefully. (laughs) There it is. Yeah. So, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So, the Spirit forbids them to speak the word in Asia. Now, they show up in Macedonia, in Philippi, outside the city at the river, and who do they meet? A woman from Asia. And it's there that the gospel is proclaimed to the people uh, in Asia. It's been said that this is most likely the first European convert to Christ, is Lydia, who is from Thyatira, from that area, now in Philippi, because she was a merchant of purple goods, which was a very expensive dye at the time. Uh, And there was um, a trade of that in Philippi. And so, what do we see here? So we we meet her, the unexpected uh, leading of the Holy Spirit. And what do we see in verse 15, uh, or verse 14? Sorry, she was, she was a worshiper of God. Yet the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So even though she, you know, much like Cornelius in chapter 10, there's an affinity towards God, but yet there's not an understanding of who Jesus is, an understanding of the kingdom of God in faith in Christ. And so here we see the ordinary work of God in how he draws people to himself. What's the ordinary, normal uh, way God can work in miraculous, you know, outside of time and space and normal means? What's the normal means by which somebody comes to faith in Christ? The word of God is spoken, God opens that person's heart, and they come to trust in Christ. Now that sounds pretty, yeah, that makes sense. We've been hearing that our whole lives. But don't miss the fact God opens minds. God opens hearts. God gives eyes to see when we are blind. God gives ears to hear when we can't hear the message of the gospel. Any, any gospel movement, any good but for the grace of God advancing in someone coming to Christ or our kids growing in the Lord is a supernatural work of God. That I stand before you every week powerless and knowing that my words mean nothing unless you receive my words. As I just prayed earlier in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, thank God that you, the people in Thessalonica, received my words, not as the words of men, but as the word of God. That's a supernatural work where God works when very flawed, very flawed human beings speak his word. It's the work of God. And so yesterday we got together as the elders, the shepherd elders of our church, and it was just a great time of just praying and seeking God's leading. So if you prayed for us while we were away, thank you. Because God uh, tangibly showed up. God led us, uh, and it was wonderful to be in his word. And we looked at uh, Paul's prayers for the church We looked at uh, the the churches in Revelation that had kind of gone a little bit off the rails, and what is true of those, God, as we read this, and we, God, we read your word. Would you show us what you desire for your church, what you desire for us? And what was great is that we had so many passages. Everybody ended up in a different place, Uh, and and just hearing the supernatural work of God. What's really scary is one, one elder pointed out yesterday that all the churches in Revelation, they were all very active in doing things. Yet Jesus is calling them out for their unfaithfulness in very certain areas. The action of a church does not equal its faithfulness. We could be the most active church on the face of the planet and still be missing the boat completely. Now, a faithful church that is in, it has uh, the, the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2, where it has Jesus as our first love, that church will be active. It's not that love negates action, but action doesn't equal love for Jesus automatically. It, it's a supernatural work where we need God to profoundly work in the midst of what he's doing uh, as we proclaim the word, as we speak it to our kids, as we read it ourselves. And this Wednesday, we have a prayer meeting and we've talked about this through the book of Acts. How did the gospel advance uh, through the Gentile world and even reach us while we're, the, to have us sitting here now is by the prayerful, uh, the prayerful approach of the apostles asking the spirit of God to powerfully work uh, through their ministry. Do you want God to work profoundly in our communities and in our families? I'm gonna submit to you, don't work harder. Fall on your face before the Lord. Would this Wednesday be the time where we say, you know what, enough already. Let's quit playing church. And let's just go before the Lord and ask for his supernatural power to be at work. I'm really hoping this is the most attended prayer meeting that we've ever had this Wednesday. Why? Not because, hey, we have a lot of people here, but the people of God asking God to come and work powerfully by the power of the Spirit is the way the kingdom advances. Lydia, the Lord opened her heart. And we're asking God to do that uh, in many different ways together. And so the unexpected leading of God. But then we kind of get this real, this this quick summary before we're going to end up at the Philippian jailer, uh, that they meet a slave girl along the way. Um, And again, you know, the unexpected, why are the apostles caring about a slave girl? Well, because everybody is an image bearer in, in, uh, in the image of God. There is no more valuable person than another. She's possessed by an evil spirit. She's being used by her owners to, to basically tell fortunes and earn them money. So they're using this girl for their own well-being. And she's following the apostles around. And this is what she is saying, being possessed by an evil spirit, verse 17. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Okay, that's a demon speaking. What strikes you as odd about that? It's absolutely true. Even the demons can see it. Now, James would say they see it and shudder because they have not submitted to Jesus as the most high God. But even the demons proclaim the truth of who Jesus is. That's staggering. Well, after a little while, verse 18, Paul's had enough, and uh, you would think, hey, keep keep saying that, but, uh, and this she kept doing for many days. Uh Anyway, the timing of that, why would it take Paul a couple days to to get here? But uh, I have no comment on that one. I don't know. But Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. And so this demon comes out of this girl. And now what happens to her owners is their livelihood is now gone. They can't, uh, they can't use this girl for their own well-being. Uh, they're a little bit mad about that. And so they start a riot against Paul and Silas. But what kind of riot? Verse 20 and 21. Okay, it's not just any riot. When they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. What kind of riot? What, was, what were they saying? They were starting a racial riot against these guys as Jews that were disrupting their culture as Romans. It's interesting. The Jews are disturbing our city. They advocate for things that us Romans don't accept or Practice and the crowds in the next verse joined in attacking them. What did they do? They 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 tore Paul and Silas uh, of their clothes. They beat them with rods. They threw them in prison. The next verse, not just part of the prison, the inner prison, the dungeon, the dark, the dreary, the damp place, like the dregs of the prison, and they put them in stocks. Now stocks are. Imagine yourself seated on the ground and your legs. Uh, kind of uh, spread to to their maximum and held in that position as you sat on the ground. That was not just to hold somebody there, that was to torture them while they sat there. Because after a few minutes of that, your legs start to cramp, uh, and it is horrendously uncomfortable. And in all of that, what shows up is the life-giving power of the gospel— Because after all of that torture and all of that mistreatment, uh, what does the the jailer who's watching them observe in verse 25? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They're probably not sleeping much when they're in stocks like that, uh, but then the prisoners were listening to them. So there they are in the midst of torture and they are singing praises at the top of their lungs. Verse 26, and then suddenly there was a great earthquake and, and that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Okay, so the earthquake comes and you know Peter got to go out of prison earlier in Acts. Here, Paul and everybody in the prison actually stays. Okay, and this is where the Philippian jailer gets to see the gospel. It's to see the tangible effects of what the gospel looks like. Verse 27. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Because in the Roman world, if a guard lets a prisoner escape, it is their life. And he knew that. And instead of making somebody else do it for honor, he was going to do it himself. Verse 28 But Paul cried out in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Could you imagine that? You think all of your prisoners escape. You're about to take your life because you know that's coming anyway. And then you hear the voice of the prisoner that you think is gone saying, Don't, man, we're still here. They were tortured. I'm sure the jailer was one of the torturers. I'm sure he wasn't gentle with them. Yet, they show the love of Christ to him. Jesus was betrayed. And what did he do? He died for those who walked away from him. Paul and Silas were tortured. And here now, they are showing the love of Christ to this jailer by staying. They literally save his life, physically, But then also you see the transformation of the man's life, not just from like his heart beating, but going from death to life spiritually. He saw the gospel displayed right in front of him, so powerfully, in fact, that he now wants to listen. So there was a sense where he's seeing the gospel. Now we see him believing the gospel. Verse 29 and 30. So after all of that, then the jailer called for the lights and he rushed in. Trembling with fear, he, fall, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Hopefully it's a question that everybody in this room and everybody on the podcast can answer. What must I do to be saved? Kind of in, in a sense, how is somebody made right with God? first thing is it's not by it's not something that you actually do and make happen it is something that you trust in because here in verse 31 and they said this is the answer what must i do to be saved verse 31 believe in the lord jesus christ and you will be saved you and your household the first word of that command is believe it's the idea of having faith it's not simple knowledge It's interesting, Uh, one uh, classic way of sharing the gospel uh, is recounting that verse about what knowledge is, just knowing about Jesus, and it's even the demons believe and they shudder. And we just saw that in our passage. Just knowing about Jesus is not the same as believing or faith. Or it's not even just trusting in Jesus for a tough time, it is transferring the trust of your life from yourself to Jesus. Other places in the New Testament would talk about it as repent and believe. Uh, some would just say repent. Some would just say like here and in John three sixteen believe. But it really is the same mechanism because implicit in believing in Christ is repenting that you cannot be your own savior, it is recognizing that you have tried to build your own righteousness, you have tried to take control of your own life as, as king of your own self. And you believe, you repent of that, and you believe in Jesus as the Son of God and the Savior of sinners. And as you believe in Christ, you will be saved. You believe that his death, resurrection, his perfect life covers your sin, your deserved wrath, and your rebellion. And so just like Lydia earlier, the jailer is saved Uh, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention. Now the jailer has the same thing. But what happened? What happened uh, upon being saved for both Lydia and the Philippian jailer? What was the immediate thing that happened to them? They were both baptized. So I'm gonna read a couple of verses for you. Verse 15 And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, basically urged us to stay. Verse 33, and he took them, and he's the jailer, he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. That God moves and changes the heart. We are marked as the people of God, by this sign of baptism. it's the sign of the people of God, a sign that declares that we follow God, uh, that we serve and worship Him. It's a sign of what God has done in us, that we've been cleansed of our sin, that we are His, that we're united to Christ. It's a mark of God's saving power. But yes, as I, as I read verse 15, and as I read verse 33, and as I read verse 31. Does it seem that I'm skipping something? It ought to. It's the work of God through families. The work of God through families. Verse 31, you will be saved, you and your household. Verse 33, he was baptized and all his family. Verse 15 about Lydia, she was baptized and her household as well what's Luke writing about and what's going on uh, in this how would he how would their, their households be saved how would their households be baptized they weren't even there when at the riverside and in the in the jail how were they affected how why would they be baptized or why would god say that God's at work. It seems that the jailer invites everyone to the prison to, uh, to hear from Paul. He washes their wounds. He he's uh, he's baptized, but yet then his whole household, his whole family is baptized, the same with Lydia's as well. Are we to think that every person in the household came to faith in Christ or is this similar To Abraham, when his entire household, sons and servants, were circumcised as a sign of the covenant people of God. Because I think in in this is this amazing truth that God works through families. The grace of God saves a parent, but the blessing flows to the entire household. The entire household is brought under the covenant protection of God's blessing. So flip with me just so that you know I'm not making this stuff up. Uh, Genesis 17. So let's go back. Remember, uh, the the one story of the scriptures. Genesis is leading and pointing to Jesus. And Jesus is pointing to the ultimate consummation of all things. Uh, So in Genesis 17, and remember, what's the pattern in Acts? Where does Paul go first? Paul goes into a Gentile city and he goes to the synagogue, a Jewish audience, which would probably know Genesis 17 merely by heart. So Genesis 17, what's going on in verses 11 to 14? So this is when God comes to Abraham and he gives them the sign of circumcision, okay? So verse 11, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins An everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people because he has broken my covenant. So here's a question. So when someone is new, a new member of God's people in the Old Testament, the covenant people of God, either by birth or by conversion or by purchase of a servant, What sign is given to them? Every male that, every new male that comes in is circumcised. Birth, conversion, purchase. New members in the Old Testament receive the sign of the covenant people of God. Now, when somebody becomes a new member of the covenant people of God in the New Testament, what's the sign? The sign has changed, it's baptism. But when the, the apostles used the word household, why would we assume automatically that that doesn't mean what it did to the Jewish audience uh, that he is speaking to? Sinclair Ferguson would say it this way in thinking of the Hebrew word that speaks of household. So uh, he says that it's, uh, the Hebrew term expresses the corporate concept of family in the biblical world in distinction from the concept of individually characteristic Uh, of our post-enlightenment and post-modern world. What is he saying? Is he saying, are you affected, is your understanding of household and family biblically rooted or is it culturally rooted? Post-enlightenment and post-modern is your concept of how God works through families that that's rooted in, in the scriptures, because it's all throughout the book of Acts, it's that, that uh, it's, it's, you know, that, that God is at work in families. Acts chapter 2 with Pentecost, the promise is for you and your children and those who are far off. And that's why, as a church, we, we baptize uh, what we, we term covenant baptism, which includes our children that are brought into the covenant community just as Abraham and Old Testament Israel uh, circumcised their male children on the eighth day, marking them as the people of God, the same pattern of household inclusion into the people of God is marked by that of baptism. Now, I totally submit to you that that is not in full agreement among many in, in uh, churches, even right down our street. But I would, I would welcome you to look into the idea of household and family, because I want to submit to you something that I think we have sold completely short in the American church, and I'm going to close with this. That as a parent, what is your greatest kingdom work that you can be be, uh, doing? I'm going to submit to you, it's not going across uh, the ocean Uh, as your first move, the greatest and most impactful kingdom work a parent could do is to pour into their children. Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply. Why? Because that's an incredible uh, growth paradigm for the church and for God's people. Isn't it interesting that in our culture, we are having less and less kids? Is that biblical? Biblical? Or is that convenient? The most impactful thing we can do as the covenant people of God is pour into our children, to pour into our grandchildren, uh, that they would know the love of God, that most obviously for any kid, they understand the love of God by their, from their parents. Now, every one of us has very imperfect parents. My mom's listening on podcast, <laughs> and she'd be the first to tell you that. So how to imperfect parents tell their kids of the love of God is that parents are first in line as those who repent and believe, those who repent and need the grace of God, those who are pointing that they're not the Savior, but Jesus is. And it's amazing what God has put into the fabric of a family when kids are brought into the covenant community. Why do we teach our kids to pray? even before they have professed faith in Christ, is because they are counted as members of this covenant people of God. I, I talked to my children, even before they proclaimed Christ as their Savior, as if they knew Jesus already. Because they were brought into the covenant people of God, into uh, the, the, the blessing of the covenant of God that they received the blessings of God because of my faith and Linda's faith, they were recipients of that. And then they came to know him and understand faith for their own. I want to encourage you families, your greatest kingdom work is going to be there at lunch this afternoon. Would you say, God, how will I show my kids, my grandkids, my wife, my husband, how will I show them Jesus? And would they know him more because of it? Let's pray. God, I I pray that you would take your word, that you would draw people to yourself. God, it's a supernatural work. And so if anybody here this morning or listening uh, on, on recording or podcast, God is moved by the Spirit we praise you for that, that you open their mind and their heart Would they come to understand and trust in Christ. God, be with us. Help us to see your amazing work through our families, that your, your uh, the channel of grace flows uh, in the midst of that fabric uh, of a household and a family. And Father, use that for your glory. I pray that we wouldn't discount it as, as just something that's Uh, well, you know, just we backed into it It is your design in this world to have your grace flow uh, in that way. And so God, I pray that we would really see that in the magnitude which you created it. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.